This morning we are continuing on uh, deeper into the book of Leviticus. We're going to be picking up in chapter 8 today. So if you want to make your way there in your Bible or the Pew Bible in front of you. When our son Asher was probably four or five years old, occasionally we'd be in the living room playing with toys or he'd be looking at a book. And after a while he'd get bored with what he was doing. And he would turn and he'd say, Dad, let's do something dangerous. <laughs> and I think in, in his vocabulary at that time, that meant you know, something more physical, something thrilling, something out of the ordinary kind of run-of-the-mill events that you might do as a four-year-old. And that activity might mean climbing something high up or jumping off something or playing with some kind of power tool, or fire, or you know, whatever, whatever it was, right there. There was a sense, even at four years of age, that, that there was an attraction to this kind of dangerous intensity. An intuition that there are at least some things in this world that are both wonderful and slightly terrifying, right? Wrapped up in the same place, the same package. I think that, that same intuition, that same sense is what makes the Indiana Jones movies so thrilling and captivating to many of us. A couple of weeks ago, Katie and the kids had left for family vacation and I had yet to, to join them and I found myself watching Raiders of the Lost Ark on Netflix. And in case it's been a few decades since you've seen it, the, the basic premise of the movie is that Indiana Jones is... Uh, he ends, in, he ends up in, in Egypt, and they find the lost Ark of the Covenant. But as they find it, there's this struggle to keep it out of the Nazis' possession. And, and part of the allure of the Ark, both for, for Indy and for the Nazis, is the kind of romance associated with its power, even with kind of the danger associated with this object. And I won't spoil it for you, but if you've seen it, you'll remember in the very last scene of the film that that those who are seeking to to possess or to trifle with this ark discover that its glory and its power and its, its sort of mystique turn into something terrifying and dangerous right, to, to those who, who misunderstand it or would misuse it. Now, of course, there's, there's way too much Hollywood in Indiana Jones to, to take anything in that film too seriously. But this morning we are moving forward in the book of Leviticus and, and we come to a text that has Israel standing before, standing close to the presence of that ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And we have an invitation for God's people to, to draw close, dangerously close, to the thres- threshold of a, a new Reality, a new kind of worship experience. I think we'll discover in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that that invitation is at once both wonderful and beautiful and majestic, but there is also an element of, of danger that to enter into the holy presence of God is a, is a serious thing. And so by the time we arrive at Leviticus 8, 
we find that Israel has constructed the tabernacle according to God's instruction. The beginning of the book of Leviticus from last week, uh, Moses was given these detailed instructions about the kinds of offerings that could be brought into the tabernacle for worship. And now all that remains is to take that next step. And and for the people of God to begin to to enter into God's presence in worship. But again, as they draw close, they need to reckon with the awesome, right? The even dangerous holiness that they find in and near to the presence of a living God. What I'd encourage us to be reflecting on and, and, and contemplating this morning as we read through these passages... Is, is what's required of us in our worship. Right? Do we have a, a sense of, do we take seriously this idea that, that the God whom we worship this morning, in whose presence we, we now sit and receive his word, right, is a God of holiness, is a God of otherness, right? is, a, is a God who is, is both beautiful and majestic, but, but wholly other than us. And what does that mean for us to come and and be his people and to give him our worship? So let me pray for us as we open the word of God. Lord Jesus, we would invite your spirit to teach us to develop within us a reverence for who you are for what it means to be close to you, to understand what you have provided for us so that we might have fellowship with God the Father, Son, and Spirit. We worship you as a God of holiness. Lord, we pray that you would make us holy as you are holy. Lord, I pray now as I teach, may the words of my mouth May the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. May they give you the worship you deserve. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, we're at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 8. And here we have the very first sacrifices now being brought to the tabernacle. And in chapter 8, they are being brought in order to to usher in, to set apart a a group of people to be a priesthood on behalf of God's people. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron and his sons their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams and the basket containing bread made without yeast. And gather the entire assembly, meaning all of the people, all of Israel. Gather them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, this new tabernacle. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses then said to the assembly, this is what the Lord has commanded to be done. And then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward. And as chapter 8 then continues, you can look on there in your text. What we discover is is that the the sons of Aaron, Aaron and his family are brought forward. 
And the whole nation is gathered around to bear witness to how this new tabernacle and how this group of priests will be consecrated and devoted to God's service. And the first thing that happens is Aaron and his sons are cleansed with water. And they're purified in that sense. And then Moses brings out these beautiful garments that have been carefully prepared. And in particular, we find this incredible description of the garments placed on the high priest, on Aaron. A sash is placed around his waist. An ephod of, of beautiful colors is placed on his chest. And then a turban was placed on the head of Aaron. And on that turban was a plate inscribed with the words, Holy to the Lord. Right, signifying that, that Aaron as the high priest was now to be set apart, was to be devoted, was to give himself to the Lord's service. And then we see in verse 10, Moses takes oil and he goes through and he consecrates the tabernacle and everything in it. Verse 10 says, the altar is consecrated with oil. The basins are consecrated. The utensils to be uh, used in the temple are consecrated. And then finally, that same oil is taken and it's placed on the head of Aaron. And he too is anointed as high priest. And again, the idea here is that all of these things are now being devoted. They're being set aside. They're being marked out for the service of God the worship of God. And then we're told that a bull and a ram are brought and offered as the very first sacrifices upon this new altar. And they will purify the altar, they will make atonement for for the people, and in particular for this group of priests, Aaron's sons says that after these first sacrifices were brought, then a second sacrifice, a second ram was brought, and it's called the ram of ordination. You can see that mentioned in verses 23 and following. It says that Moses takes the blood of this sacrifice, and instead of placing it upon the altar, he takes that blood and he smears it on Aaron and his sons. He puts it on their right ear and on their right thumb and on the big toe of their right foot. And again, signifying that they are to be set apart. They are to be consecrated and and atoned for by the blood of this ram. And then we're told that that as part of this ordination offering, each of them are given a a portion of of the ram and they are, are, are to bring it and they are to wave it before the Lord as an offering. And the word for ordination in Hebrew literally means to fill one's hands. The idea that the priests are given things to be placed in their hands and to offer them, to bring them, to lift them in worship to God. So they take the the portion of this ordination ram, after being smeared with its blood, they offer it before the Lord, and then they return it to Moses, who places it uh, back on the altar to be burnt as an offering to God. And then finally we're told that Aaron and his sons were to remain there in the tent of meeting, remain there in the tabernacle for seven consecutive days. 
day and night, never leaving the presence of God. And they, they feast upon these offerings. And I think the idea in, in this duration of time, an entire week is set aside for them to be there in God's presence. And I think this is to remind them and to remind all of Israel who witnesses this, that they are now devoted to, they are now members, not just of their own household, but of the household, of the tabernacle, of the dwelling place of their God. So we have this this great worship and, and offering of these first sacrifices, and then we're told throughout chapter 8, after each and every sacrifice is offered, that these things were done as the Lord commanded Moses. You see that in several places in chapter 8. And then as a kind of summary statement at the end of the chapter, verse 36, it says, Aaron and his sons did everything the Lord commanded through Moses. There is a thoughtful, there is a careful obedience being described here. The picture we have is that as they enter into this new space of worship, right, that they do nothing more and nothing less than what God himself has required, what God himself has spoken and commanded. Right, their worship has focus. Their worship has, has a humility and a patience right, to be scrup- scrupulous, to attend to only that which God has communicated. I think if we're looking for a first point of, of application for ourselves this morning, it's this. Right, that, that we're pretty good, I think, in, in our contemporary context of of recognizing that worship is meant to be personal. Worship is meant to be heartfelt. And of course those things are necessary. But we have, to, we have to guard against a modern temptation to allow worship to become primarily about us, about what we feel, about what we desire, about what we experience. Worship as understood here in these chapters is about bringing everything we are into the service of who God is, of what he is revealing, of what he desires for his people. Right? Worship is about everything the Lord has commanded. And so sometimes we are given, sometimes we need the, the sort of formal structures of, of worship and liturgy to recapture this, this focus in our worship, that our worship is meant to draw us into a recognition of the holiness of God, of who he is, of what his character is about, of what his desires are for us, his people. Right? We, we have to cultivate that sense of attentiveness. And I think Leviticus is, is driving home at the end of chapter 8 this very point, that they've done everything as the Lord desired, as he commanded And so we reach the end of chapter 8 and we now have a tabernacle, all of its furnishings that have been consecrated and devoted to the Lord. We now have a priesthood that is is made ready and consecrated, devoted to the Lord. And now it's time for the whole of God's people to bring their offerings into God's presence. And that takes us into chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, On the eighth day, so they've been set apart for a week... 
after this ordination service. On the eighth day then, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect. Present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil. For today, the Lord will appear to you. goes on in verse 5 and 6 and says, Then they took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. And then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Again, if we remember back to last week, we looked at verses chapters 1 through 5, and actually 6 and 7 in Leviticus go on. And they are devoted, again, to, to enumerating the different kinds of offerings, the instructions of how they're to be brought, what is to be done. But even though we have all that, that description, it's not until now, until chapters 8 and 9, that those first sacrifices actually take place. And here at the beginning of chapter 9, Israel now is finally given the invitation to bring their offerings into God's presence. And so worship that morning begins by Aaron offering a, a sin offering on his behalf, a bull and a ram. Remember just the incredible graciousness of God in the fact that, that probably only weeks or months before Aaron was the one making a, a golden calf, right? To, to ultimately, that threatened to lead Israel astray in their worship. And God had mercy on his people. God has mercy on Aaron and now is atoning for him, making a, a way for him to, to lead the people back to him and into his presence. So so Aaron offers this sacrifice on his behalf. And then Moses calls all the people to bring a sin offering, to bring burnt offerings, to bring fellowship offerings, to bring grain offerings of their own to be given there in the tabernacle. And at the end of these instructions in verse 6, he attaches an unusual promise. He says that these sacrifices are to be brought today Right, as a kind of worship to God, to set apart the people in God's service, to belong to Him, but also so that today the glory of the Lord may appear to you. There's this promise given. And so, once again in chapter 9, we find that the people do what the Lord has commanded, that there is reverence, that there is careful obedience to each thing the Lord has said. Right? Verse 5 says, the entire assembly drew near. They stood before the presence of the Lord. Right? You can sense that, that waiting posture, that attentiveness in their worship. And we're told that each offering is presented as the Lord commanded. We see that again and again through chapter 9. And so atonement is made on behalf of the people. Purification is accomplished for the people. They are set apart. 
And incredibly, here in, in the wilderness of the Sinai, right, a group of people that only a year ago were slaves under the hand of Pharaoh, now they are encamped in the desert and they are drawn into a, a holy fellowship with the presence of the living God. Right? They are there with him in worship. They belong to him now. And as a sign of God's pleasure, a, a, a sign of God's approval that, that this is what worship is intended to be, to be a dwelling of, of God with his people, of God making a way for his people to be drawn into his presence, we're told in verse 23 that something remarkable takes place that day. Verse 23 says, Moses and Aaron then went into the tabernacle, into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Verse 24, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, They shouted for joy, and they fell face down. That is an incredible picture. Here is all of Israel assembled in, in one mind, in one accord. This is the very first day, the inauguration of their worship of God in this way at the tabernacle. And Leviticus says that 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 first day of worship culminates in fire coming forth from the presence of God. And the fire was of such holy intensity that it it consumes, it it burns up in entirety these offerings that had been placed there in God's presence. When the fire and the glory of God are made visible, then the the people, we're told, they shout for joy, and they are also rendered awestruck, right? They fall before the Lord, face down in worship. Now, we may not experience God in, in this way. We may not have experienced holy fire in this sense. But if you have, have experienced what it is to be in intimate proximity with who God is... There is an indescribable elation to that sense of nearness. A confidence that simply being in the presence of God, being with him, is the greatest kind of good. As Pastor George MacDonald once quipped, God is and all is well. God's holiness elicits from us joy awesomeness of who he is. And the joy is is not about what God has done or will do. It's about simply being there with him, experiencing his delight in us as his people. And again, the the picture of worship here in Leviticus is that, that we're meant to be led into a place where we recognize how awesome, how holy, how how good, how, how different the character and the nature of God is than any other thing in all of, of reality. Right? It's, it's meant to stop us in our tracks so that we might reverence who he is. 
But to be that close to the holiness of God, to be that close to to who God is and, and how he's revealing himself is also a serious thing, even a dangerous thing. And we see that in a second and very different expression of holy fire that comes just moments later. Look at the start of chapter 10. So as as all the people are face down and awestruck in worship, chapter 10, verse 1, Aaron's sons, two of the priests, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. And so fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. How do we make sense of of this next development? That's a troubling set of verses. What's happening here? Why is God expressing his holiness in this way? I think there are not a lot of details given in these two verses, but I think there are a few things we're meant to notice. The first is that throughout chapters 8 and 9, remember that refrain was that everything the priests, everything the people did was as the Lord commanded. As the Lord commanded. They did everything according to what God had revealed, what God had requested. Everything had been done with this incredible reverence for God's holiness and and holy otherness in worship. But at the very end of verse 1, chapter 10, that pattern is suddenly and abruptly broken. And we're told that Nadab and Abihu bring a kind of offering that was contrary to God's command. In Hebrew, it's it's just two words, that that it was not commanded. It was was not requested by the Lord. And if we consider what's happening here, there's a sense that their their worship moves from from reverence and, and awestruckness and, and a careful attention to who God is and how he's revealing himself. And it's, it moves quickly toward a kind of arrogant innovation. Right, we're going to add something to this experience. Right, moments after God has chosen to consume and to consummate Israel's offering of worship on this first day in the tabernacle... Moments later, Nadab and Abihu decide that they will produce, they will bring forth fire of their own. And the scriptures do not call their fire holy. But instead, it's described as unauthorized. Other translations use the word foreign. They bring foreign fire into the presence of God. And that word can even carry a kind of overtone of that which is adulterous. That which does not belong. And this probably suggests that what Nadab and Abihu are doing here has some connection to to a kind of worship, a kind of ritual that they had probably seen in the worship of another god. Perhaps the gods of Egypt. In the worship of idols. And so what what happens is that in verse 2, the holy fire of God comes forth again but not to consume their offering, but to consume them. 
their affront to the holiness of God costs them their lives. Verse 2 says. And as you look at verse 3, we find Moses trying to understand, trying to reflect on the, the severity of what's just taken place. And Moses seems to remember something that God had spoken to him in the past. Quite possibly when he was atop Sinai. When he was in the the fiery, holy, glorious presence of God himself. At some point, Moses says, verse 3. This is what the Lord spoke of when he said. Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And then we're told that Aaron remains silent to reflect on and to receive these words. And there's a sense that, that we cannot worship God apart from if we do not recognize His holiness. We have to, to worship God with a recognition that it, it is God that will do the revealing. It is God that will do the leading. It is God that will even do the providing of the means by which we worship Him. And that He is zealous not to be confused, not to be forced into, not to be worshipped in such a way that, that we might make of Him an idol of the human heart. Right? His name that he reveals to Moses back in Exodus is, is Yahweh. I will be who I will be. I am the God that, that is the great I am. You cannot assume, you cannot project onto me your forms of worship. You must receive, you must attend to, you must bring yourselves into my presence and recognize that I am a holy God. I will make atonement for you. So the, the chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Leviticus here have this, this pairing of two contrasting images, but both are connected to the holiness of God. Chapter 9, we see all of Israel basking in the glory, basking in the holiness of their God, struck with, with joy, awesomeness. But then that same glory in chapter 10, is expressed as a resolute commitment of God to guarding his character, to keeping it unmixed. Writer Reed Metcalf says that that there is a tension in God's holiness. That we have to, to wrestle with both the sovereignty of God and also his solidarity with his people. Right? We are meant to know God is always for his people. God is always desiring to be near with and close to his people. But we cannot lose the sight sight of the fact that he is also holy, that he is also set apart. How How do we keep these two things together in our worship? I want to close with with one final idea about about how we strike this balance. There's a moment in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, early on, when Susan has just recently entered the world of Narnia. She's trying to understand how things work there. And she keeps hearing about the, the high king of Narnia named Aslan. 
she wonders, well, what sort of person is this Aslan? What would it be like to come before him, to be in his presence? And as she's wandering aloud, she asks a new friend of hers, Mr. Beaver. He says, you know, what's it like? What is Aslan like? And Mr. Beaver replies, he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Well, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Right? Maybe that's how we, we feel about entering into the presence of, of a God of this kind of holiness, this kind of intensity. Right? Is he quite safe? And this is how... Mr. Beaver replies, he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I want to just offer you one last passage. In the book of Hebrews, if you're looking for a, a companion book of the New Testament to read alongside Leviticus this summer... The book of Hebrews would would be my recommendation. Hebrews chapter 10. We're told that we have that kind of king. A king who may not be safe, but who is most certainly good. We have a great high priest, the author of Hebrews says, in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of who he is, of, of what he has done, of the sacrifice he has already offered in the presence of God... We are encouraged, we are invited to boldly go to follow him into the holy presence of God. This is what Hebrews 10.19 says. Therefore, my friends, we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Again, that's the curtain of the holy of holies. And since we have this great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and in full assurance of faith. With hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and let our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Because he who has promised is faithful. Of course, it is not safe to enter into the presence of a holy God. But neither is there anything better, anything higher than than to be with him and to belong to him because he is good. He is the king of all creation. And he has invited us in Christ Jesus to boldly come and to be with him. And pray for us today. God, I pray that you would continue to grow our worship, to be in accordance with everything you have desired, everything you have commanded. Lord, that we would, as the author of Hebrews says, place our confidence in, eagerly come into your presence, trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, trusting in his fullness trusting in his mercy, trusting that you desire to make us like him in holiness.
knowing that the one who is promised is faithful, is perfect in love, calls us his people. Pray these things in the strong and mighty name of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Amen.